Hey, good morning to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Round Podcast. We are live on YouTube TV. And also, you can pick this up, Buzzsprout YouTube, Apple iTunes, at your convenience if you're unable to join us live. Good to have you aboard this morning, Tuesday morning, with the sun shining. And, you know, here we are in Rochester. And yesterday was one of those days that we all live for. I actually got out and played golf yesterday, and it was it was such a great day to play golf. And we got a few more days of this weather. I'm sure we got some cold weather coming in behind it to remind us it's still March. But right now, let's just be thankful for what we've got. And there's a lot to be thankful for. If you live in central or western New York, now the Bills off season continues. We're going to talk about Mitch Trubisky and what he is bringing to the Bills table and how Brandon Bean was able to snag him and continue what I think has been an excellent offseason for Brandon Bean. We'll talk about that. Talk about Major League Baseball only nine days away from the season opener, and they're going to play 162 games and going to be fans. It's it's almost as if a real baseball season is going to take place this year. Certainly talk about that. But the big story, of course, in sports, and it transfers locally as well, is the NCAA tournament, a unique tournament, a bubble tournament that I wonder going forward if this is something the NCAA may consider. You know, they award Final Fours to cities. Why not just award a tournament to the cities that you're going to? I know they like to spread it out, and, you know, if fans come back, it certainly will be a big deal to have fans in their own buildings and do things like have first rounds in Buffalo, Syracuse, different cities, and then move things around. But this is kind of a unique thing that they're doing, and I wonder if there's a potential to do a bubble situation where a city like Indianapolis gets three weeks of visitors and teams and things like that. It's It's been very interesting to watch. One thing, if you'll notice, if you recognize the referees, you're watching these guys work about every day. And that's something that, as the tournament started, you were seeing them work every day. I don't think you'll see that now. I think you'll see guys working one game per round. But it's that's another part of it. They haven't had to bring as many refs in. And, of course, they sent six home because of COVID. So that's another part of this thing. But Syracuse University has been a big part of the story as well. A lot of high seeds have advanced, but let's face it, we care about Syracuse. I grew up in central New York, followed this team for many, many years, pretty much as long as Jim Beheim's been the coach. I've been following this team, and this, again, is one of those years that Syracuse seems to thrive on. I don't know if they'll get in. I don't know if they're on the bubble. They don't deserve it. And next thing you know, they're in the Sweet 16 and making noise there. One advantage, and I hit on this a little bit last week, that Syracuse has, because of the uniqueness of their zone defense, when they play in tournaments, they play teams that they haven't played before. Example one, game one of the tournament, they play San Diego State. They had played San Diego State three times in the history of their schools. San Diego State isn't ready for that zone. And if you watch the game, they didn't know how to attack it. They didn't know what to do. It was 
an amazing display of defense. And I know Buddy's getting all the press, and that that's fine. We'll get to Buddy Buckets. But the zone defense is different now than it was during the year. It's more active. There was times where the back line especially struggled mightily. The guards are better defensively when Kadari Richmond's in because of his long frame, his long arms. He's great at the top of the zone. But Gerard has played well in defensive spots, is much more active. Buddy's length helps defensively. But the back line has been much better. And, and nothing exemplified that more than when Syracuse went to Jesse Edwards with a, just over nine minutes left in the first half against San Diego State. And San Diego State didn't score the rest of the half. The length of Jesse Edwards, moving Marek to the four, now you've got additional length there. Quincy Garrier plays a little bit bigger than 6'8". So now that back line is not only long, but active and athletic. And, and I think that changed things in a big way in the first game. Offensively, it was the Buddy Beheim show. And, and it's great to see this kid who many people look at him and, well, he's only playing because he's his father's son. Well, that may have been why he got recruited to Syracuse. This kid has developed as well as any player who I've seen put on a Syracuse uniform. If you had told me as a freshman that Buddy Beheim was going to average 27 and a half in the NCAA tournament, I don't know how long I would have laughed for, but it would have been a good laugh. There was no way I saw that. But this kid's a lights-out shooter. We all knew that. And from day one, we knew that. But what we didn't know is he had the ability to put it on the floor, recognize a mismatch. He's got good basketball IQ, especially offensively. He knows he can get a shot off against a shorter player, and he's not afraid to shoot it. You know, Buddy shot 17 times against San Diego State, made eight of them. But the big part of that was he was 6 of 13, or he was 7 of 10 from three. He, he was great offensively in that game. 30 points. He chipped in four rebounds, but the 7 of 10 from three was a huge part of it. The other part of the success so far for Syracuse has been that Joe Girard has played much better to the point where he looks like the Joe Girard we saw last year and we expect it to develop. Joe had a tough season. He didn't shoot it particularly well. He got benched a lot because Kadari Richmond's a heck of a young player. And it all seemed to pile on and, and, and affect him. But he hit a couple shots against San Diego State, and I think it changed him. When you look at Gerard's numbers, he played 29 minutes. He had 12 points, which that's not exorbitant, but seven assists and six rebounds. Yes, he turned it over four times, but it shows he was active. He was aggressive. He was out there doing things. And, and to me, that's confidence. I thought this kid lost his confidence through much of the year. Through the first game of the tournament, I thought he regained a lot of that confidence, especially hitting a couple shots early to get him going. And I think as much as Buddy Beheim is going to be the focal part of the offense – 
I think getting Gerard a good, clean look early on, letting, letting him see the ball go through the net, does wonders for this kid's game. I think he is definitely on the upswing. And let's face it, if you followed the NCAA for years or, or you, you pay attention to it, this is a guards tournament. It always has been. It always will be. With Buddy and Gerard both playing well, and Katari Richmond has given get good minutes. He hasn't gotten the impact that he had during the regular season, namely because Gerard's playing so well, and you're not going to take Buddy out when he's shooting well. Katari doesn't have a place to go. Now, I think there are times, especially at the end of games, where Beheim, Jim Beheim, should go to a three-guard set to help get the ball in. If you watched the game against West Virginia, the inability to close that game out by getting it in bounds and bringing it up court, I, I thought that was where you go with the three-guard offense and, and take your chances, get those three guys in the game. You know, it's funny, game one, Marek had a decent game. He was 11, he had 11-4 but when Marek's on the floor, he does so many things well defensively as well. He, he rebounds. He, he's just a good overall basketball player. Makes the right pass at the right time quite often. But I thought it was interesting. Quincy Garrier in game one, three points, four rebounds. Alan Griffin didn't score, only played 15 minutes. If you had told me Syracuse is going to get a comfortable win in the NCAA tournament, with minimal contributions from Alan Griffin and Quincy Gurrier, I wouldn't have believed you. These two guys, especially early in the season, were key parts of this team. Robert Braswell coming in, hitting two of four from three. Braswell's become an X factor in, in the way Syracuse is playing. He plays good defense. He can shoot it. And it's funny, we've heard for years – Robert Braswell's a very good shooter. Then you get to game time, and it doesn't translate. He's a very good practice shooter, has not been a good game shooter. But we're starting to see it. And, again, I think it's a little bit of confidence. He's getting a lot more time. He's not getting the quick hook when he misses a shot. And I think he's an important part of this puzzle as the Orange go forward. Now, game two, West Virginia, and, and Bob Huggins – won his 900th game in round one, looking for number 901. I believe it was the first NCAA tournament game where both coaches had over 900 wins. Of course, Jim Beheim has almost 1,100. I know they say he only has like 980, but he has almost 1,100 wins. Let's not forget the NCAA took 109 wins away from him, I think it was, which is just ridiculous. Those games happened. We all saw them. They happened. He has almost 1,100 wins. But it's a different West Virginia team this year. They don't play the lights-out defense that Bob Huggins is known for, but they score much better. And, and that was evident early on as Syracuse was able to get things going. And, again, early on, Joe Girard hits a couple shots, hits a couple threes, and gets himself going. And, again, Girard had 12 points, six boards, seven assists. Same stat line as he did against San Diego State. And you're going to sign up for that if you're Jim Beheim every day of the week. Buddy started a little slowly, but here's the beauty of Buddy Beheim right now. His confidence is so high, 
he's not going to stop shooting it. He's going to continue to find his shot. And, and, and at times, he's going to work for his shot to get himself going. And that's that's confidence. He had 25 in the game against West Virginia, 6 of 13 from three. And you look at the two game totals, 55 points, that's 27 and a half per game, 13 for 23 from three-point range. And as important as the 13 number is, the 23 number is just as important because that shows he's being aggressive offensively looking for his own. You look at the rest of the stat line for game two, Marek again, 12-6, and six, just solid. And played through foul trouble for the last part of the game was key in, in helping break the press because he can handle it, he can bring it up. Does so many little things well. Had five assists in this game. Gurrier had a better game at 12-7. and seven. But again, Alan Griffin, three points in 11 minutes. Alan Griffin has become a lost player in this run. But Robert Braswell, 29 minutes. And he didn't score a ton. He had seven points. He had three rebounds. But his effectiveness in the zone has become something that Syracuse has certainly benefited from. Alan Griffin is somebody who I'm not ready to give up on for this year. When Syracuse plays Houston on Saturday night, Griffin's a guy who could get off. He could go for 30. He's got that ability. So, again, right now it looks like he's a lost player, three points in two games of the tournament. But this is a kid who, again, if that first shot goes, where does he go from here? He can really shoot it, can finish around the rim. His defense has been a little bit better, but I think the rebounding aspect, Braswell gives him a little bit more bulk, and I think that helps. And rebounding is going to be the key against Houston. Houston, one of the best rebounding teams in the country. Houston got by Rutgers by rallying late, and in that game, they out-rebounded. Rutgers 39 to 29. Now Syracuse had played Rutgers early in the year in the ACC Big Ten Challenge, a game they lost, a game they competed in. But I think the Syracuse team we're watching now is much different than the one we saw, especially early in the regular season. It's a team that's evolved, and I gave Jim Beheim grief when they didn't evolve. I got to give him credit; he has changed the rotation by using Robert Braswell more by playing Jesse Edwards. And Jesse didn't do much on on Sunday against West Virginia. And he only saw seven minutes. That's the right way to play Jesse Edwards. When he's effective, he gets the minutes. If he's not, you give him back to Quincy Garrier. You give him back to, to Robert Braswell. You look at Kadari Richmond, who saw a ton of minutes towards the end of the season. Bayheim's re- not reluctance to use him, but hasn't had to use him as much because Joe Girard has played so much better over the last couple games. So it, it, it's it's a luxury situation that Bayheim's now got a bench of three or four guys that he's trusting. And, and again, Alan Griffin is not really getting much off that bench. Braswell's getting the bulk of the minutes right now because he's playing better. But I think if Griffin gets going, the way Jim Beheim has been coaching, he's going to stick with him. He's going to 
stick with the hot hand, not just play guys because of this is our rotation. Again, look at Houston, what they did against Rutgers. Quentin Grimes had 22 points, nine rebounds, a little bit above his season averages, 18 and six. It's a kid who shoots 41% from three. He's going to be a big factor in this game. DeJon Giroux, 17 and five against Rutgers. It's a much better, much better outing than he's used to. He's normally 11 and five. Justin Gorham's a big guy in the middle, 8.5 points, 8.6 rebounds. This Houston team makes its living on the boards. Marcus Sasser, the second leading scorer, 13.3 points per game. They are going to pound the boards. One area that Houston is not good in is they commit a lot of fouls. They generally put teams on the line. And, and here's where I see an advantage for Syracuse if they're aggressive offensively. If they run their sets and they do the things they should and not just settle for jumpers, they could get to the line and create opportunities there. Houston's known to foul. They're aggressive defensively. Use that against them. Take the ball to them. Get fouled. Get to the line. Score from the line. It it frees things up. You look at what Houston has done this year. Their key losses, or their three losses, I should say, not key, three losses, Tulsa, East Carolina, and Wichita State. And you look at that and you're like, none of those teams are – really good teams. Wichita State was a tournament team, but you're not impressed by that. Their biggest win that I could find is they beat Texas Tech. Now, they play in the American Athletic Conference. The AAC is not a great conference. It's it's a good conference, but it's not something that you're looking at for tremendous competition. It's just not that that school. So while they're a two seed, they're 26-3, and They've earned this. Calvin Sampson has been a very good coach. He's cheated at a couple different places, but he's been a very good coach and been successful wherever he's been. The one thing I want to point out about Calvin Sampson, and as it relates to Syracuse, and again, go back to what I said in the open about the zone. When Syracuse made their run in 2003, they came up against a Calvin Sampson-coached Oklahoma team, a very good Oklahoma team who couldn't handle the zone. Now, because of the scheduling, Houston has a week to prepare for it. But I don't know that you can prepare for the zone in a week. I don't, I don't know that you can simulate it in practice, especially with the length and athleticism that Syracuse has. So I think that's going to be the key to this game. How does Houston handle the zone? Are they able to get Grimes off and get him some open looks from three? And, you know, if you're playing at this point, the other team can play too. They're going to score. And you know Houston's going to score. But can Syracuse get their shots and their looks against Houston's pressure defense? And that's where I think this game comes down to. The zone defensively gives Syracuse an advantage. Offensively, I think they're going to be challenged. And, and Gerard needs to play a clean game. He needs to hit a couple shots. He needs to continue to take care of the basketball. 
when Kadari gets in there, he also needs to take care of the basketball. Buddy, keep doing what he's doing. And then you look at the front line, and if you could get contributions from two of four guys, you know, if you think about it, you got Jesse Edwards, Marak, you've got Quincy Garrier, and Alan Griffin. And I'll throw Robert Braswell in. If two of those five can give you double figures and you can get some rebounding out of them, I think Syracuse wins this game. I really do. I think the uniqueness of their style gives them a little bit of an advantage. I think the momentum that they're feeling, I think the fact that Buddy Beheim thinks every shot he takes is going in right now gives them something. Gerard feeling good about his game. You look at Marek's abilities to do the little things and, and, and the fact that he is a senior who's seen a lot of basketball you've got a lot of X factors. Quincy Garrier, in my opinion, hasn't had that game yet in the tournament that he's very capable of having. Quincy could go for 20 and 12 any night that he's out there. It's just, does he get the opportunities? So I think Syracuse has got to find opportunities within the game to get the normal shots that they get. And if they make their shots, I, I think they compete. And, again, this zone defense is different from what everyone has seen. You don't have the opportunity to simulate it in practice because it just isn't normal. And I think it gives teams a lot of credit. Look, San Diego State had a week to prepare for it. They looked like they had never seen a zone defense before in their lives. So I'm not saying San Diego State and Houston are on par. Houston's going to have a hard time simulating this defense and getting through to the Elite Eight. It's, it's going to be a, a fun game late Saturday night. A lot of people upset that the game is so late, but it is what it is this time of year, especially with this bubble. And, and if they win, they play Monday night for a chance to go to the Final Four. And, and, and I never thought I'd be saying those words, but – the second half of this weekend, statistically anyway, the seeds are much lower that Syracuse will face. So you look at what they're up against, I think that they've got a chance to, to get to the Final Four if they get by Houston. Houston's a two seed, but the other half of the bracket, Oregon State and Loyola, that's a 12 and an 8. I, I think Syracuse can navigate that. The tournament itself has been about the lower seeds winning, and we've seen it, whether it be Oral Roberts, a 15 seed, get to the Sweet 16. Only the second 15 seed ever, Florida Gulf Coast, a few years back, got there. But they get there, and it's one of those things you start looking at teams like Loyola of Chicago. This is a team, Sister Jean is back. A couple of years ago, they got to the Final Four. It's just one of those things that March comes around and some of these schools are some lay eggs. Let, let's face it, Kansas last night laid a huge, huge egg. And it was one of those, you look at Kansas and you look at what they're about and you think, how does this happen? But USC ran them out of the gym. Evan Mobley, the freshman who's – he and Cade Cunningham, probably the first and second picks in the NBA draft upcoming. But 
you look at the number of things that Mobley can do with his size and his athleticism, not a great shooter yet, but can hit the mid-range jumper. Kansas just got blown out. And, you know, you want to talk about blue bloods. Kansas is gone. Carolina's gone. Duke, Kentucky never made it. Now, UCLA, the bluest of blue bloods, in my opinion, based on the John Wooden years, they've won three games already. They continue on. Oregon, the Pac-12's had a, a really good run. Oregon beating the crap out of Iowa yesterday. I had seen Iowa play a number of times this year. And, you know, for all the talk of Luca Garza and what a great player, college basketball player he has been, and he has. To me, Iowa was going to either sink or swim based on their guard play and their ability to shoot the three. Garza's going to get his, but can Bohannon and, and, and other guys get theirs? And they didn't yesterday and got run out of the gym. Gonzaga and Baylor, the two best teams in the country all year long, continue to be that. Gonzaga, you look at what they've done in the tournament, yet to be tested. Drew Timmy has 30 yesterday. They, they run Oklahoma out of the gym. They just have a different gear. Baylor's athleticism. And, again, this is one of those COVID tournaments where experience is going to translate. And, and it has. You know, the one-and-done schools, Duke and Kentucky, didn't make it. The veteran schools, last year's three best recruiting classes, by all accounts, were Duke, Kentucky, North Carolina. Carolina was one and done and got run out of the gym. It's very different this year without the summer bonding, the summer camps and all those things, the fall workouts, the ability to play a cupcake schedule at the beginning of the year. Very different than a normal year, and it takes a lot, a lot of time especially with one-and-dones. Every kid's the best player on every team he ever played, and now he's got to play in a team setting. It, it takes a lot for those teams to get used to it, and, and I don't think it translated this year because of the COVID protocols, the inability to practice. You know, you think about it, use Syracuse for an example. There were times this season they'd go one and a half to two weeks without practicing together, but veteran teams – that stay together are, are they, they have much higher higher floors, if you will, because they've been together, they've seen so much, they know what they're ready to expect. Other things that have happened in the tournament, Creighton. I, I didn't expect Creighton after their performance in the Big East tournament to win two games, but they did yesterday. But it was over a number thirteen Ohio team, and I got to mention. That Ohio team has two Section 5 kids. The Brown brothers, Miles and Michael Brown, both go to Ohio. So uh, that was the team I was rooting for. Michigan, their defense is great. And, and, and yes, they've lost their best player. Maybe he'll come back this weekend. But they really get after you. And the big kid, Dickinson, is, is a mismatch inside. They're a fun team to watch. And, and I'm not sure that they won't get to the Final Four and make noise there because they play defense in, in a way that will keep you in games and let you win games. Florida State, they are a team to watch out for. The, the ACC simply hasn't had a good good tournament. Syracuse and Florida State, the only teams left. Virginia, one and done. 
not good there. But this Florida State team, they are dangerous, and Leonard Hamilton gets it done. He's a very good coach. Keep an eye on them as we go through this weekend. Alabama has won two games. Nate Oates, the former UB coach. You know, it's funny. Nate Oates has now become a guy that he said some things. He's become very outspoken when they beat LSU in the SEC Conference Championship. Gives them a get the bleep out of here, you know, type thing. So a lot of people look at him as the controversial, outspoken. He is all of that. But this guy can coach. And in year one at Alabama, he's got them to the Sweet 16. He's doing great things. Arkansas beat Texas Tech. Texas Tech is a team I'd seen a number of times this year. They were a team that I would have picked over Arkansas, but I'm not surprised that they lost. This isn't, again, you know, I talked about Bob Huggins, traditionally great defensive coach, and the offense is what's secondary. Texas Tech with Beard is is the same type of program. This year's team, though, not a great defensive team. Didn't get after it defensively. So because of that, it's not totally surprising that this is the case. Villanova, look, you lose your best player, you generally don't go on a big run. But Villanova, they're still out there battling. Jay Wright is a hell of a coach. This is a hell of a program. And they continue to do things well in the tournament. This weekend's going to be fun. You, you look at Saturday, the matchups, you got a 12 versus an 8. You've got a 15 versus a 3, 11 versus a 2, and a 5 versus a 1. It's anything but a blue blood or a top-of-notch bracket. But the games are interesting. You know, Syracuse-Houston, that's going to be a tough game. Oregon State-Loyola, if you've watched Oregon State the last couple games, which I did yesterday, this is a team that was picked for last in the Pac-12. Here they are battling to get to the lead eight. Loyola, again, uh, you know, for all the, the talk of Sister Jean, this is a good basketball program. they got a big man who gets after it and does so many little things to help his team win. It's, it's fun to watch. And, you know, Nova Baylor, I expect Baylor to come out of there unscathed because, again, if Villanova had its full complement, maybe it's a different game. But – Villanova, this time of year, they're tough, and it's going to be tough. So really good stuff coming up over the next week. It was fun yesterday having games on all day. It was fun for me Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's been different. It's certainly been different. The scheduling's been different, but, man, it's working. And and after not having March Madness last year, to have it this year, sign me up. Whatever whatever you have to do to keep it going, I love it. And, and you know, we, we seem to be getting towards the end of the pandemic. Signs are, you know, we're coming out of it. I hope next year is a normal year. Maybe there's 20,000 people in the Carrier Dome. Maybe we get to back to where the Cameron Crazies are part of it and, and the, the off-season workouts are part of it. I hope we get to that. But 
I do know this. What the NCAA has done, and they get criticized rightfully so often, and again, rightfully so, for them to go the way they've gone. One game canceled. VCU had a COVID situation. They get canceled. It, it's It's been good so far. I hope it stays that way. Hopefully no other teams have COVID situation. They have to cancel something. And, you know, we get somebody that gets the Final Four and a forfeit. I don't want to see that. But, man, it's been good so far. So that's college basketball giving us a, a real good taste of March Madness over the last few days. Brandon Bean has had a, a very good offseason. He brought back his players with Feliciano signing a, a very team-friendly deal. Milano comes back. They re-signed Williams at right tackle. The, the, keeping the band together, he's gotten players to reduce their salaries. He's gotten other players he's had to cut and move on from, like John Brown. But he's replaced them. Emmanuel Sanders comes in instead of John Brown. And I don't want to say Emmanuel Sanders is a better fit because he doesn't have the take the top of the defense off speed that John Brown has. But his ability to run routes, when you add that to Cole Beasley and you add that to Stephon Diggs, man, that's going to give Josh Allen somebody open. If, if you play zone, those three guys will find the soft spot in the zone. You play man, one of those three guys is going to beat their man. And I think the Emmanuel Sanders signing is a result of what we saw in the AFC Championship game where the Chiefs did play press man-to-man, and the Bills struggled to beat it. John Brown didn't beat his guy, wasn't able to get open. Gabriel Davis wasn't able to get open. Now you put Emmanuel Sanders in that spot, and another year of Gabriel Davis learning the tricks of the trade from three of the best route runners in the NFL, I think this is a better equipped team to handle that type of defense. Mitchell Trubisky's the Bills' backup quarterback. Excuse me. Mitchell Trubisky is one of those guys who I believe has had a bad rap. When you look at his numbers, look, this kid was the second overall draft pick. Nobody expected him to go two. The fact that Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson, and we'll get to that in a minute, that's an interesting story. The fact that they went 10 and 12 of that same draft made Trubisky and the fact that the Bears traded from 3 to 2 to get him look worse. But his overall numbers, he's 129 of his 50 starts. He's completed career-wise 64% of his passes, 10,600 yards in 50 starts, 64 touchdowns, 37 interceptions, an 87.2 quarterback rating. Those aren't awful numbers. Those aren't Hall of Fame numbers, certainly. But you look at what Trubisky brings to the table, he's going to be a guy, if Josh Allen gets hurt, you don't change the offense for Trubisky. He can move, he's got a big arm, and he can make the same throws that Josh can. Allen, career-wise, has a worse completion percentage. He's 
got 67 touchdowns to the 64 of Trubisky, 31 interceptions to 37 of Trubisky. So the numbers aren't that far off. Career rating 90.4 versus 87.2. Of course, last year, Josh took a huge step forward. The question is, does he continue that rise or at least plateau to that level? We saw two different Josh Allen so far in his three years. So the guy who looked very raw and didn't have a clue really how to run a team. And then we saw a guy who's in complete control and can make every throw. Two totally different quarterbacks. But I think what Trubisky gives the Bills is an ability to to go out there and to maintain should Josh Allen get hurt. And I think that's an important thing. The Bills have upgraded this position, and it's a, a team-friendly deal. It's a one-year prove-it deal. You see in a lot of these, similar to what Jameis Winston did last year with the Saints, I, I think it's a smart move. And, you know, God forbid Josh get hurt for an extended period of time. Your season doesn't go in the tank with Mitch Trubisky. I, I, I don't think he's a great quarterback, but I think he's significantly better than Matt Barkley. Now, here's – where it gets a little weird because Matt Barkley was a huge part of the mentoring and a huge part of the internal team structure that works so well in Buffalo. When Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott set up the culture they set up, Barkley was one of those guys who was key in instituting the culture that's there and really helped Josh Allen early on. Now, Josh has graduated, if you will. He doesn't need the mentor he needed before. What the team needs is a guy who can come in and play if Josh can't play. And I think they did that with Mitchell Trubisky. And let's let's be honest, if something were significant early on to happen to Josh, Trubisky gets a couple games, plays well, there's the ability to move him midseason to a team that might need him. So there's a potential return on this investment Beyond just the Bills playing, Trubisky's a starting quarterback in this league. I do feel that. Maybe he's a bottom third starting quarterback. But, again, as as a team who has a top five starting quarterback in this league right now, to have somebody that talented behind him, I think it's a really good move. And, you know, a lot of this comes about because of the new TV money that's coming in. Not so much in the Bills' case. When you look at the Dak Prescott contract, you'll see it, I believe, next year with Josh Allen's contract extension. The TV money is going to make the salary cap go up in a big way. The new TV deals that were signed, it's an 11-year deal for $113 billion, with a B, billion dollars. 11 years, $113 billion. Each team... Each ownership group will get a check each year of those 11 years for $300 million. Think about that. The salary cap this year is $180 million. If you look at the Patriots, Robert Kraft doled out a couple hundred million in guarantees. Well, he's going to get $300 million from the league. That doesn't even count if they sell tickets, they sell beverages at the stadium, parking, all the concessions, the jersey sales, merchandise, all of that is extra money. 
your debt service and payroll are covered by TV. This NFL ownership is a license to print money. $300 million per team going forward. And again, this past year, there weren't fans in the seat. So each organization took a financial hit that way. You know, I think the biggest crowd of the year was 30,000 in Dallas, which is a third of what they normally put in that stadium. So, yes, last year the money was affected. This year the salary cap comes down because of that. But going forward, there's going to be crazy money in the NFL. And while we're looking at $40 million contracts for quarterbacks as, man, that's a lot of money, it, it may not be that much coming soon because you may see a $50 million quarterback before too long, which it's crazy. That is insanity to me, but it is what it is. We saw it in the NBA, guys like Steph Curry making $45 million a year. I, I think they're going to be $50 million quarterbacks in a couple of years, and I never thought I'd see that in the NFL. But the, the, these TV deals, which will change the way we watch it too, Thursday Night Football is going to be on Amazon Prime. You're going to have to stream it. It's much different than if you have Spectrum or DirecTV. Much different thing. I believe DirecTV has lost the NFL Sunday ticket, which is something that they held exclusively for the better part of 20 years. And that's a big deal because that's one of those incentive things that they gave their their customers to keep them around. Their numbers have plummeted AT&T in the works of selling DirecTV for about a third of what they paid for it just five years ago. So the TV economics, they, you could teach an economics class with what's going on in the NFL. Deshaun Watson, the, the number of lawsuits against him is up to 13. He hasn't been suspended, hasn't pl- been placed on the commissioner exempt list. You know, Watson was a guy who wanted out of Houston was never going to play for Houston again, in his words, anyway. Didn't like the direction the franchise was going. There were talks of three number ones and two starters going back to Houston for him. Well, I don't know what becomes of these these lawsuits. I'm a big where there's smoke, there's fire guy. Now, if, if there was one attorney who had two women who represented Watson, you look at it and you say, is there any evidence and – you never want to discredit the women's claims because it's such a serious allegation. You've got to investigate it thoroughly. But when you're up to 13 different lawsuits and a number of women have come forward with similar stories, these all revolve around a, a massage therapist being sexually assaulted. There's too much smoke for there not to be any fire. And in one situation, there was a allegation or an, an attorney approached Watson for money. This was in February for a settlement to not go public. The most recent allegation took place in early March. So even after this had gone on, potentially, allegedly, and was about to come out, what 
these allegations are saying that Watson acted the same way again after the fact. This is a guy who off the field had a sterling reputation. He is what, what you would want in a franchise quarterback, supposedly. But now this, all these allegations, I'm not sure what the NFL is going to do, but they've done nothing yet. They haven't reacted to this yet. And I, I think that's somewhat problematic. I think they've got to react to it and, and, and suspend or put him on the commissioner's exempt list. There's got to be a thorough investigation because right now there is so much going on with this that you're taking one of the premier players in the league and, and you're putting him in a situation where people like me are talking about his off-the-field stuff, and, and there's so much smoke. There's got to be some fire. It's just – I know it's been civil lawsuits, but I think – with this much, this many allegations, I think the law enforcement portion of it will start investigating it. And man, I don't know where Deshaun Watson goes from here, but this is really the more you hear about it, the more you think, what the hell is wrong with this guy? And I don't know what happened. And, you know, frankly, the woman who was the massage therapist and all of these allegations, they're all different women. And Deshaun Watts, only they know what truly happened. But there is an awful lot of smoke for there to be no fire in this situation. The NFL has got work to do. And Deshaun Watson has got a lot of work to do to clear his name. If he's wrongfully accused by 13 different lawsuits, man, that's, that's tough to believe. It's very hard for me to think that all of these different women who have similar stories, are all fraudulent. That would have to be the case for Deshaun Watson, to be clear. That, that would be very hard for me to believe. Too many, too many different situations with similar stories to think that this is all just a bunch of crap. So, very interesting. Major League Baseball, I mentioned this earlier, we're only nine days away from the season opener. I don't remember a quieter spring training than this year. I don't remember hearing less about what's going on in Arizona and Florida than I have this year. And in a way, it's very good because we are going to get 162 games. Spring training is winding down. Teams are in the situation now where you're stretching pitchers out four to five innings, get them up to 70, 80 pitches, so that they can go 90, 95 when the season starts. It, that is, if you're using traditional starters. The injury situation, there hasn't been a ton. The Yankees, of course, Zach Britton, Clark Schmidt, both out for extended periods of time. The Mets have had a couple injuries with Seth Lugo and now Carlos, Carlos Carrasco. So there have been some injuries, but it hasn't been – a whole lot of talk about baseball and you know sometimes you take the theory of no news is good news well in this case I don't know that it is last year when baseball came back it was one of the first things to come back and we were so desperate to watch anything at that point that baseball benefited this year everything's back the draft is coming up in the NFL that's a huge 
production thing and, and huge viewership. Obviously, March Madness going on, that's huge. Hockey in places where your team hasn't lost 13 games in a row has been very popular. Not so much in Buffalo, but, you know, overall. And baseball is just kind of in the background where it's been over the last couple of years. I, I don't know what has to happen for people to get excited about baseball. As somebody who I enjoy baseball immensely, I watch a lot of Mets baseball, and, and I know that says I'm a very tortured soul because why would you watch a lot of Mets baseball if you're not a tortured soul? It's just one of those things. I'm very much looking forward to it. But I think by and large, it's going on, it, yet people aren't paying any attention to it. And, you know, next week at this time, we're two days away from the start of the season. Will anybody be really looking at opening day? Opening day is always such a huge, huge event. And it's one of those things that people look forward to as a sign of spring. All, all all sorts of good stuff that go on. I'm not seeing it. I'm not feeling it this year with baseball. And, and, and I don't know if it's just me, but it, it should be much more popular, in my opinion, to have the season only nine days away. You, you'd think there's more talk of it. And I think baseball is losing its place in the sports world it, it continues to slip ratings-wise. Their average age demographic of their viewership is, is not good. It's my age, and that's not a good thing. They continue to try to tweak the game to make it more interesting, and I think in some ways they're turning off the people who already watch it. It's, it's just strange, and, I, again, I don't know what to make of it, but the fact that we're nine days away from the opening day of Major League Baseball and very little – is being discussed about it. It's just very strange to me. I don't remember this little fanfare surrounding the end of spring training in the past. So hopefully by the time the season starts, people will jump on board and we'll, again, get 162 games, minimal COVID interruptions, and we'll all enjoy a great summer of baseball. I, that's my hope. We'll see how it turns out. Well, that's the podcast for this week. You joined us live. Appreciate that. If you're catching us on one of our many outlets of a traditional podcast, thanks for listening. Have a great week, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falk and Around Podcast. 